section two of history of henry the fourth king of france and navarre by john stevens cabot abbott this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter one childhood and youth part two about this time mary queen of scots was to be married to the dauphin francis son of the king of france their nuptials were to be celebrated with great magnificence the king and queen of navarre returned to the court of france to attend the marriage they took with them their son his beauty and vivacity excited much admiration in the french metropolis one day the young prince then but six or seven years of age came running into the room where his father and henry the second of france were conversing and by his artlessness and grace strongly attracted the attention of the french monarch the king fondly took the playful child in his arms and said affectionately will you be my son no sire no that is my father replied the ardent boy pointing to the king of navarre well then will you be my son-in-law demanded henry oh yes most willingly the prince replied henry the second had a daughter marguerite a year or two younger than the prince of navarre and it was immediately resolved between the two parents that the young princes should be considered as betrothed soon after this the king and queen of navarre with their son returned to the mountainous domain which jeanne so ardently loved the queen devoted herself assiduously to the education of the young prince providing for him the ablest teachers whom that age could afford a gentleman of very distinguished attainments named la gaucherie undertook the general superintendence of his studies the young prince was at this time an exceedingly energetic active ambitious boy very inquisitive respecting all matters of information and passionately fond of study dr johnson with his rough and impetuous severity is said it is impossible to get latin into a boy unless you flog it into him the experience of la gaucherie however did not confirm this sentiment henry always went with alacrity to his latin and his greek his judicious teacher did not disgust his mind with long and laborious rules but introduced him at once to words and phrases while gradually he developed the grammatical structure of the language the vigorous mind of henry grasping eagerly at intellectual culture made rapid progress and he was soon able to read and write both latin and greek with fluency and ever retained the power of quoting with great facility and appositeness from the classical authors of athens and rome even in these early days he seized upon the greek phrase a nikon e apothenein to conquer or to die and adopted it for his motto la gaucherie was warmly attached to the principles of the protestant faith he made a companion of his noble pupil and taught him by conversation in pleasant walks and rides as well as by books it was his practice to have him commit to memory any fine passage in prose or verse which inculcated generous and lofty ideas the mind of henry thus became filled with beautiful images and noble sentiments from the classic writers of france these gems of literature exerted a powerful influence in moulding his character and he was fond of quoting them as the guide of his life such passages as the following were frequently on the lips of the young prince over their subjects princes bear the rule but god more mighty governs kings themselves soon after the return of the king and queen of navarre to their kingdom henry the second of france died leaving the crown to his son charles 
a feeble boy both in body and mind as charles was but ten or twelve years of age his mother catherine de medicis was appointed regent during his minority catherine was a woman of great strength of mind but of utmost depravity of heart there was no crime ambition could instigate her to commit from which in the slightest degree she would recoil perhaps the history of the world retains not another instance in which a mother could so far forget the yearnings of nature as to endeavour studiously and perseveringly to deprave the morals and by vice to enfeeble the constitution of her son that she might retain the power which belonged to him this proud and dissolute woman looked with great solicitude upon the enterprising and energetic spirits of the young prince of navarre there were many providential indications that ere long henry would be a prominent candidate for the throne of france plutarch's lives of ancient heroes has perhaps been more influential than any other uninspired book in invigorating genius and in kindling passion for great achievements napoleon was a careful student and a great admirer of plutarch his spirit was entranced with the grandeur of the greek and roman heroes and they were ever to him as companions and bosom friends during the whole of his stormy career their examples animated him and his addresses and proclamations were often invigorated by happy quotations from classic story henry with similar exaltation of genius read and re-read the pages of plutarch with the most absorbing delight catherine with an eagle eye watched these indications of a lofty mind her solicitude was roused lest the young prince of navarre should with his commanding genius supplant her degenerate house at the close of the sixteenth century the period of which we write all europe was agitated by the great controversy between the catholics and the protestants the writings of luther calvin and other reformers had aroused the attention of the whole christian world in england and scotland the ancient faith had been overthrown and the doctrines of the reformation were in those kingdoms established in france where the writings of calvin had been extensively circulated the protestants had also become quite numerous embracing generally the most intelligent portion of the populace the protestants were in france called huguenots but for what reason is not now known they were sustained by many noble families and had for their leaders the prince of conde admiral coligny and the house of navarre there were arrayed against them the power of the crown many of the most powerful nobles and conspicuously the almost regal house of guise it is perhaps difficult for a protestant to write upon this subject with perfect impartiality however earnestly he may desire to do so the lapse of two hundred years has not terminated the great conflict the surging strife has swept across the ocean and even now with more or less of vehemence rages in all the states of this new world though the weapons of blood are laid aside the mighty controversy is still undecided the advocates of the old faith were determined to maintain their creed and to force all to its adoption at whatever price they deemed heresy the greatest of all crimes and thought and doubtless many conscientiously thought that it should be exterminated even by the pains of torture and death the french parliament adopted for its motto one religion one law one king they declared that two religions could no more be endured in a kingdom than two governments at paris there was a celebrated theological school called the sorbonne it included in its faculty the most distinguished doctors of the catholic church 
the decisions and the decrees of the sorbonne were esteemed highly authoritative the views of the sorbonne were almost invariably asked in reference to any measures affecting the church in fifteen twenty five the court presented the following question to the sorbonne how can we suppress and extirpate the damnable doctrine of luther from this very christian kingdom and purge it from it entirely the prompt answer was the heresy has already been endured too long it must be pursued with the extremest rigour or it will overthrow the throne two years after this pope clement the seventh sent a communication to the parliament of paris stating it is necessary in this great and astounding disorder which arises from the rage of satan and from the fury and impiety of his instruments that everybody exert himself to guard the common safety seeing that this madness would not only embroil and destroy religion but also all principality nobility laws orders and ranks the protestants were pursued by the most unrelenting persecution the parliament established a court called the burning chamber because all who were convicted of heresy were burned the estates of those who to save their lives fled from the kingdom were sold and their children who were left behind were pursued with merciless cruelty the protestants with boldness which religious faith alone could inspire braved all these perils they resolutely declared that the bible taught their faith and their faith only and that no earthly power could compel them to swerve from the truth notwithstanding the perils of exile torture and death they persisted in preaching what they considered the pure gospel of christ in fifteen thirty three calvin was driven from paris when one said to him mass must be true since it is celebrated in all christendom he replied pointing to the bible there is my mass then raising his eyes to heaven he solemnly said o lord if in the day of judgment thou chargest me with not having been at mass i will say to thee with truth lord thou hast not commanded it behold thy law in it i have not found any other sacrifice than that which was immolated on the altar of the cross in fifteen thirty five calvin's celebrated institutes of the christian religion were published the great reformer then residing in the city of Bâle. this great work became the banner of the protestants of france it was read with avidity in the cottage of the peasant in the workshop of the artisan and in the chateau of the noble in reference to this extraordinary man of whom it has been said on calvin some think heaven's own mantle fell while others deem him instrument of hell theodore beza writes i do not believe that his equal can be found besides preaching every day from week to week very often and as much as he was able he preached twice every sunday he lectured on theology three times a week he delivered addresses to the consistory and also instructed at length every friday before the bible conference which we call the congregation he continued this course so constantly that he never failed a single time except in extreme illness moreover who could recount his other common or extraordinary labours i know of no man of our age who has had more to hear to answer to write nor things of greater importance the number and quality of his writings alone is enough to astonish any man who sees them and still more those who read them and what renders his labours still more astonishing is that he had a body so feeble by nature so debilitated by night labours and too great abstemiousness and what is more subject to so many maladies 
that no man who saw him could understand how he had lived so long and yet for all that he never ceased to labour night and day in the work of the lord we entreated him to have more regard for himself but his ordinary reply was that he was doing nothing and that we should allow god to find him always watching and working as he could to his latest breath calvin died in fifteen sixty four eleven years after the birth of henry of navarre at the age of fifty-five for several years he had been so abstemious that he had eaten only one meal a day End of section two